Hi there, thanks for tuning in for session 8 of the 4th World Sepsis Congress, the potential and challenges to intervene with the immune response. Once again, we have a fabulous lineup of speakers, moderated by our very own Nathan Nielsen from the United States. Nathan, over to you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be uh, on this world, joining us for the 4th World Sepsis Congress. Uh, my name is Nathan Nielsen. Uh, with the Global Sepsis Alliance at the University of New Mexico. And I'm delighted to welcome you all to session eight of the uh, fourth World Sepsis Congress. This is a session entitled The Potential and Challenges to Intervene with the Immune Response in Sepsis, of course. Uh, I am going to be joined by uh, five uh, extremely talented, extremely knowledgeable speakers. Uh, so I am going to get out of the way as soon as I can. Uh, we are going to begin with uh, Jennifer Muzinski from Nationwide Children's from here in the United States, and she is going to be speaking to all of us on the impact of the pathogen and the host response on survival. So please, uh, Dr. Muzinski, the floor is yours. Thank you. So certainly when we think about the post-inflammatory response to sepsis, this is not a new concept. We're used to thinking about and in fact defining sepsis by an overwhelming or exaggerated inflammatory response, the so-called cytokine storm. And indeed, the magnitude and duration of that exaggerated inflammatory response is associated with organ dysfunction and mortality. But under the surface, and perhaps clinically less apparent to us at the bedside, uh, many patients at the same time that they are experiencing this exaggerated inflammatory response also are exhibiting signs of immune suppression, this compensatory anti-inflammatory response that when severe and prolonged is itself associated with adverse outcomes. Now, this was demonstrated in children uh, just over two decades ago now, actually, uh, in uh, children with uh, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome from nosocomial encephalitis, a uh, immunoparalysis, which is a severe form of the sepsis-induced immune suppression, uh, was associated with greater risk of mortality. Uh, a biomarker that we use frequently to define uh, immunoparalysis uh, is the ability of innate immune cells in whole blood to produce the inflammatory cytokine TNF-alpha in response to lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And we find that uh, those children with an ex vivo LPS-induced TNF-alpha production capacity of less than 200 picograms per ml are at uh, much higher risk of mortality uh, from sepsis. And moreover, those children who die tend to have lower uh, innate immune responses over time, particularly over that first week of illness. So this is not just a static uh, phenomenon. And it's probably not unique to bacterial sepsis either. Uh, as an example of viral sepsis, uh, these are uh, a data from a multi-center study of children with critical influenza, so children admitted to the ICU with influenza, wherein those children who did not survive had a much lower ex vivo TNF-alpha production capacity uh, compared to influenza survivors. In a larger follow-up study, 
of 102 children with severe sepsis or septic shock from multiple infectious etiologies. Again, the same measure of innate immune function, the LPS-induced TNF-alpha production capacity, was measured within 48 hours of sepsis onset, so early uh, after the onset of sepsis. When we look at the overall cohort, uh, hospital mortality and uh, the rate of new nosocomial infection was relatively modest at 6 and 10% respectively. But when we look at this measure of innate immune function or uh, this LPS-induced TNF-alpha production capacity, a lower TNF-alpha response was independently associated with longer durations of both single and multiple organ dysfunction. And this was uh, when this measure was uh, applied to samples from patients within the first 48 hours of sepsis. Now, this phenomenon is not unique to innate immune cells or the innate arm of the immune response. Um, certainly in adults, uh, Richard Hotchkiss and his group and others have demonstrated associations between uh, lymphopenia and lymphocyte apoptosis uh, in patients with sepsis. Um, have identified the phenomenon of lymphocyte apoptosis that may be unique to sepsis compared to other ICU controls. And similarly, in children, prolonged lymphopenia has been associated with uh, increased risk of nosocomial infection uh, as well as mortality. Uh, and moreover, uh, this was a follow-up study to the one that I've just showed, uh, where we looked at children with uh, septic shock, the majority of whom had community-acquired sepsis, um, and identified again that a low absolute lymphocyte count was associated with the subsequent development of nosocomial infection or with persistence of the original infection. But I think more importantly, when we took T-cells from the patients themselves, and stimulated those cells with PHA or phytohemagglutinin, uh, we saw a reduced cytokine production capacity. Um, and so above and beyond the lower lymphocyte cell numbers, um, the T cells themselves were not responding appropriately to stimuli in those children who went on to develop uh, nosocomial infection or had persistence of their infection. And so immune suppression is associated with poor outcomes but what about inflammation? What about that other side of that curve? And indeed, for each of the studies that I just showed you, I could also show you data on inflammatory biomarkers. If you look at circulating inflammatory cytokines, whether it be viral sepsis, uh, influenza, for example, or uh, bacterial or other sepsis, high levels of circulating inflammatory mediators are in fact associated with poor outcomes as well. And in the recent multi-center phenom study, this was a study that looked at uh, over 400 children uh, with sepsis-induced organ dysfunction. Uh, and the intent was to identify uh, four different immune-related uh, phenotypes. And I'm going to call your attention to two of those, one being the immunoparalysis that we've just been speaking of, but the other being a macrophage activation-like syndrome. And this can also be uh, termed hyperferritinemic sepsis or hyperinflammatory sepsis syndrome. Uh, and what was interesting in the phenom study that uh, among those nearly 300 children, so 289 children with MODS, there was an overall mortality of 11%. But those children who had an immune phenotype had a much higher mortality, including a mortality of nearly 50%, so 48%. For those children with this hyperinflammatory or macrophage activation syndrome like sepsis, 
uh, and a mortality rate of 16% among those with immunoparalysis, and though, though a higher number of children with immunoparalysis. And then there was this very interesting group of children who sit in the middle of the Venn diagram who had both uh, evidence of immunoparalysis as well as macrophage activation-like syndrome or hyperinflammatory sepsis. And for those children, the mortality was about 40%. And so we know that the host response to sepsis is complex and dynamic. We know that both inflammation and immune suppression are associated with poor outcomes. We know that some patients have both, but we don't exactly know why. Uh, and so there was a relatively recent review article that I think put a very nice uh, diagram together that really uh, illustrates the concept that the host response to sepsis likely is a complex interaction of host factors, including the host microbiome, environmental factors, including treatments received, as well as pathogen factors. So drilling down on those pathogen factors briefly, certainly it makes sense that different pathogens would interact with the uh, immune system differently, uh, that each individual pathogen has different arrays of pathogen-associated molecular patterns that interact with different toll-like receptors uh, and probably have some similar downstream effects, but probably at least a few distinct effects as well. Uh, and certainly, uh, in children at least, there's been a fair bit of work done looking at post-pathogen interface in staph aureus infection. And so as an example of this concept, if we go back to that influenza study, it turns out that of the eight children who died within that study, five of them had a concomitant staph aureus infection. And that was out of a total of 11 children with staph aureus. And so a nearly 50% mortality rate in those children who had influenza and staph aureus. And staph aureus infection in general was associated with a much lower SVVO TNF-alpha production capacity compared to those children who were co-infected with other bacteria or who did not have a bacterial co-infection. And so it seems to suggest that there probably is some specificity to the host pathogen interaction in the immunologic response to sepsis and in a way that is probably impactful in mortality. But there's a lot that we still don't know. Um, we certainly, on total, uh, are still working to understand how these complex interactions between host factors, environmental factors, and pathogen-specific factors drive immunologic responses to sepsis and resultant outcomes. Uh, how specific are these host-pathogen interactions in terms of immunologic responses? You know, is there one program response to sepsis? probably not, um, versus different sepsis phenotypes and how do individual pathogens interact with those individual sepsis phenotypes. And more import importantly for me, as a pediatric provider, how do these responses change with age and or cumulative exposure to infection over the lifespan from neonates to adults? And ultimately, most important, how do these responses contribute to sepsis mortality, and what targeted therapies would improve outcomes. And with that, I thank uh, the audience for your attention and am happy to take any questions. Well, I think I'm going to exercise uh, speaker's prerogative <laughs> and, and jump in, or sorry, moderator's prerogative. Uh, thank you for a, a, a wonderful introduction to a very complicated topic, but you lay out some of the principles very, very clearly. 
my, my question is actually one of curiosity, uh, this being an area of just a mind, of course, as well. Um, you lay out some very um, precise, but you know, not easy to perform assays mm-hmm. of immunoparalysis. Is there anything that's uh, perhaps less precise, but uh, easier to get a hold of? Yeah. That may also uh, may also stand in for that, because right. Ultimately, I think people who are watching this want to know how can they gauge where their patients mm-hmm. are in that kind of hyperimmune. Uh, hyperinflammatory versus immunoparalysis spectrum. How can you gauge that on a kind of a practical bedside level? That's an excellent question. And certainly a lot of work in this field by our group and others uh, is working on trying to bring uh, these type measures to the bedside so we can have that precision and you know ease of bedside use. Right now, until that happens, probably absolute lymphocyte count is about the best that we have. Uh, So the ALC is, in fact, associated with outcomes. Um, The uh, discriminatory power to predict uh, outcomes, at least uh, in our studies in children with sepsis, is not as high uh, as these other biomarkers, but it's about the best that we have clinically available to us at the moment. Um, Practically speaking, you know, knowing that, you know, when we do use these uh, measures about 30% of children with multiple organ dysfunction demonstrate immunoparalysis or the severe form of immune suppression. So the other way to think about this is if I have a children, child in the ICU with multiple organ dysfunction, um, I will uh, treat them as if they are an immune compromised patient, not huh. knowing huh. Uh, what is uh, under the surface. And so that's a little bit huh. of how this work uh, can be applied at the bedside. Oh, that's a that's a great concept. I like that. If they're if they're already showing signs of multi organ damage from sepsis, assume that they're already mm-hmm. to some to some degree or another a functionally immunocompromised person. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a very interesting insight. I, I like that. Oh, all right, alas, we could go on and on and on, but uh, we do have an agenda to get through. So, uh, Dr. Mazinski, thank you for a fantastic introduction to the beginning of this uh, session. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you. All right. Uh, uh, alas, uh, moving moving onward. Uh, so much to get through. Uh, we're now going to segue to our second speaker, uh, joining us from the Netherlands, and here to talk about an, another topic I, I think is one of the most important developments in our sepsis understanding over the past decade or so. Uh, Dr. Mahai Natea, I hope I'm pronouncing that even vaguely correctly, uh, joining us from Rodwood, uh, UMC. I have a good number of friends there. Uh, and going to speak to us on sepsis immune endotypes. Uh, Dr. Natea, again, I'm hoping I'm getting that anywhere close to the correct pronunciation. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for your kind introduction. And also thank you very much for inviting me to share with you some of our uh, some of our work. And I would like to discuss with you a little bit in continuation of Dr. Muzinski's uh, presentation, which was excellent, uh, setting the setting the field. How can we uh, go further in trying to identify endotypes um, um, in sepsis depending on their immunological function, and how can we use that in the future uh, to improve the the treatment of the patients? And 
just very briefly in the beginning, just uh, just to uh, say once uh, once more, if we have somebody with sepsis, the question is, why is somebody with sepsis dying? And of course, the easy first answer, which is also correct, is that the microorganism is very important. So the sooner we start with antibiotics, the, uh, the better the outcome of the patient is. This is a, a study done uh, some years ago already, which showed that if we delay the, the administration of antibiotics, the survival of the patient with sepsis will decrease. So to make it very clear, the microorganism is very important. But next to the microorganisms, there is also the reaction of the host to that infection. And if we ask ourselves, are there other components uh, of this interaction that are important for the outcome of the patients, we have to realize that uh, microorganisms in general, and this is the example of meningococcus, they release not only uh, microorganisms that invade tissues, but they re uh, release also all kinds of, uh, of components there from their cell membrane. These are the outer membrane uh, vesicles or blabs from meningococcus, which contain a lot of, uh, of stimuli. And the, and the host itself sees this as, as also an important component of the, of, the, of the invasion and reacts very strongly. And people have shown also some years ago that actually the mortality in sepsis is also very strongly associated with how much of these uh, bacterial components are, are released. For example, LPS again, uh, uh, patients with a very high concentration of LPS in their uh, circulation, they also have a, a, a poor outcome. And people came to the conclusion that probably the way in which the host defense react against the infection is also very important. And it can also get dysregulated in severe, uh, in severe situations. Of course, in most of the situation, 99% of the infections that we have every day, the host defense mechanisms are crucial and they, uh, they protect us against the infection. However, if all these steps that we can see here in terms of production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, release of reactive oxygen species, uh, induction of, uh, of complement activation, of coagulation, and so on, are overwhelmingly activated or they are not enough uh, uh, stimulated during an infection, this dysregulation can lead also to uh, a component um, uh, of the pathogenesis of the disease that leads, uh, leads to a poor outcome. Now, based on this data and based on older, uh, older experimental studies in, in animals, especially mouse studies, non-human primates, the, the concept has emerged that hyper-responsiveness uh, hyper of, of, uh, of the host to, uh, to the pathogen is one of the most important components in sepsis. And a lot of trials with anti-TNF, uh, anti-interleukin-1, anti-TLR4, so blocking this overwhelming response was tried in all the patients, but unfortunately, all these clinical trials failed. And the question is now, what did we do wrong in the 90s and in the beginning of the years 2000s that all these anti-cytokine, anti-TLR uh, uh, um, uh, clinical trials has, have failed? And as uh, Dr. Muzinski said, actually, this is not the whole story. Part of the story is that in addition to this overwhelming reaction of the organism, we also found very often, and in many patients also, and inefficiency in the response to the microorganism. This is also uh, one of the, uh, of the very important studies published in JAMA in 2011 by the group of Richard Hotchkiss, showing actually 
the, the, even in the tissues, not only in the blood, because we knew for a long time that in the blood, the cells are not capable of responding properly to the uh, uh, to, a, to a secondary um, uh, to a secondary stimulation. But we always thought, yes, because the real cells which are activating are in the tissues, they go there, and what remains in the blood is actually only the uh, the cells which are inactive, that they are uh, they are a little bit lazy, and that's why we see these defects in the blood. Well, this is unfortunately not true, because this uh, very important study has, has shown that actually this defect in the activation of cells is also taking place in the tissues. These were patients who, who, uh, in, which, uh, uh, in which the family agrees that very soon after, unfortunately, they died, uh, uh, studies in, in their organs were possibly to be done, and we have seen there also low uh, expression of HLA-DR on their immune cells, uh, uh, lympho, uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, lymphocyte apoptosis, lack of lymphocytes, lack of activation of these cells. So basically the immunoparalysis component was present also in their tissue. So based on this, on this knowledge, uh, uh, the, the concept has arise that we have uh, we have both hyperinflammation and uh, immunoparalysis in sepsis. Some patients have one, some patients have the other, some patients have both, as we've uh, we've heard before. And actually, we have to personalize uh, the immuno uh, the immunotherapy in sepsis. Well, we do that already for antibiotic treatment. We, of course, if we have an E. coli, we don't have an we don't give an antibiotic which works for uh, for Staphylococcus aureus. We personalize the antibiotic uh, therapy. So why shouldn't we? Personalized, basically, also the uh, the immunotherapy, and based on this uh, on this um, uh, knowledge, um, we uh, we performed together with our colleagues from the group of Evangelos Gamarelos uh, the provide studies, which was a first attempt to personalize the immunotherapy in sepsis, which in which we uh, uh, which divided we divided patients with septic shock depending on the presence of a very high ferritin and a diagnosis of macrophage activation like syndrome or immunoparalysis based on, on HLA-DR, uh, uh, low expression on the monocyte, into these two groups, MALS and immunoparalysis. And of course, the other, uh, the other uh, patients who did not display any of these defects, they were characterized as, uh, as intermediate. And then we, uh, we tried to treat uh, patients with uh, immunoparalysis with recombinant interferon gamma, and those with uh, immuno, uh, 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 with macrophage activation like syndrome with anakinra. Now this trial uh, was uh, uh, terminated sooner because we very uh, very quickly realized that actually we have done a couple of things that can be improved. Uh, we planned the therapy to be only for one week, and after one week, actually we had a significant difference in 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 um, uh, sofa and survival. But thereafter, apparently this was too short because the, the deficiency persisted. And when we stopped the therapy, actually we lost all the difference between the, uh, between the groups. So based on, this, uh, on these teachings that we took from the PROVIDE study, we now have designed Immunocept trial, which is now performed in, in five different European countries in approximately 30 independent uh, um, uh, clinical centra in which we, uh, uh, which we uh, performed a precision uh, uh, immunotherapy by identifying patients with hyperinflammation, and they are uh, randomized to receive either placebo or anakinra, or the patients with immunoparalysis 
that are randomized to receive uh, placebo and recombinant interferon gamma, and then we treat them for uh, for two weeks, and we have performed a number of other improvements that hopefully will allow us uh, to get a, a clear answer. And hopefully, somewhere in the middle of next year, we will able to communicate uh, the results. Now, in addition to this immunological uh, immunological um, um, approaches assays to diagnose uh, to diagnose immunotypes in sepsis, there were also other omics-based uh, approaches that try to identify subgroups of patients and maybe even identify uh, better approaches to therapy. This is one of these. Uh, uh, of these uh, we don't have time to go uh, through all of them, so I'll just give you two examples. This is the example of uh, a MARS study, uh, a, large, uh, a large study performed in the Netherlands, in which, in which the colleagues from Amsterdam and Utrecht, uh, they analyze based on the transcriptome uh, uh, the, uh, the patients with sepsis, and they identify four different uh, um, um, uh, functional endotypes uh, based on the transcriptome of immune cells in, in these patients, and they also identified a clear correlation between these, uh, uh, these functional uh, immunotypes and uh, and the survivors in, uh, survival in sepsis uh, with uh, with one of them uh, Mars one for example being uh, clearly uh, uh, more severe. Now this is an unbiased approach. Of course, sometimes with unbiased approaches, a little bit more difficult to understand which are the most important pathways which are uh, uh, responsible for uh, for that uh, outcome and which is the best uh, uh, which is the best uh, approach for therapy. So another uh, another possibility is a study that in which uh, there is a collaboration between colleagues in the Netherlands, uh, Greece, and um, and in Israel, in which we combine actually immunological knowledge together with uh, with omics approaches. We identified first in experimental studies transcriptional programs that are are correlated either with systemic inflammation and a poor outcome in this, that experimental model. Or with resistance to uh, uh, resistance to microorganisms and survival, and we identified based on these on these transcriptional programs different patients that have more or less um, uh, expressed transcriptional programs in in one of them. You can see here individual patients that either have a strong uh, uh, a strong systemic inflammation or a poor uh, a poor resistance. And what we have identified is actually three very uh, clear groups of patients, patients in which uh, the transcriptional program was characterized by a very strong uh, increase in systemic inflammation, individuals in, in which the, uh, there was a severe deficiency in the resistance program, but we also had a subgroup of, of, of patients in which the balance was, uh, was distorted. They had also more hyperinflammation, but not as extreme as the other, and uh, a slight decrease in resistance, but actually the uh, uh, the ratio between that was significantly uh, significantly uh, decreased, and all these uh, all these uh, uh, patients were actually associated with clear uh, with clear um, uh, changes in the in the outcome of the patients. Now, based on these transcriptional programs, now we know precisely also that these these are associated either with hyperinflammation. Or with resistance, and we are designing now new therapies uh, uh, to approach in future trial uh, uh, the patients with sepsis. So what we what we think actually it's it's needed that we have to go 
away from one-fits-all uh, approaches to the therapy of sepsis and towards a precision med medicine approach in immunotherapy. We have to identify endotypes, immunotypes, either in a supervised uh, way or unbiased way, but identify those. Identified also, also simple, uh, uh, simple assays that can uh, that can diagnose these patients in the clinical practice every day because we are not going to do uh, full transcriptome in all our patients, so we need to identify uh, biomarkers for that. And thereafter, to design based on those uh, on those uh, endotypes, new immunotherapy approaches in a personalized manner in the patients. And with that, of course, I would like to to thank all our colleagues who who, who helped for that uh, for uh, for these studies from our hospitals, uh, our collaborators from Athens and from Amsterdam, and for, uh, from Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. Oh, excellent, excellent talk. Thank you. That was. Uh a uh, <laughs> tour de force of going through kind of, I think, the the future of our understanding of um, individualized responses to, to septic insults. Uh, there are a couple of questions from the our audience, uh, one of which I'd, I'd like to adapt a little bit. Um, I think an interesting uh, issue that was raised is um, looking at hospital readmission uh, due to infection as a possible uh, lingering effect of immune suppression uh, or immune dysfunction of sepsis. Right? I think a lot of our data focus on in-hospital immunoparalysis, but does the immunoparalysis linger? Yes, this is right, an is excellent it? question. And actually, it was not enough done. Is overdue these type of, uh, of studies. There are mm -hmm. some indications uh, that indeed, I mean, there are epidemiological indications showing that Actually, patients who are recovering from sepsis, they go home, they have increased uh -huh. mortality, uh, they have increased readmission due, due to infections, they have increased mortality due, inf due to infection. Actually, there are also other types of, of pathologies that are, that are uh, disturbed. For example, especially for uh, after gram-positive uh, pneumonias, there are very clear studies showing uh, for example, that there is increased cardiovascular uh, complications because there is an acceleration of atherosclerosis. So oh. all these changes that uh, that take place, unfortunately, they uh, they persist. We know now we are in the beginning of understanding that there is a very important uh, reprogramming reprogramming at epigenetic level of the of the immune cells and their progenitors in the bone marrow, and these uh, these epigenetic changes persist for several months, if not one one and a half years, and these are responsible actually for a disbalance in the immune responses long after the sepsis was uh, uh, was treated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, just, just to clarify, I think for our audience, this immunoparalysis or immune dysfunction, it, it runs the entire spectrum of the immune response, right? It's absolutely. not just immune immunity, it's adaptive immunity, no, also it's, adaptive it's natural immunity responses. We have defective lymphopoiesis, we have uh, increased uh, lymphocyte apoptosis, we have at the same time decreased expression of, of uh, activating markers on innate immune cells, defective cytokine production capacity, so there is a very complex uh, immune defect. Yeah. Excellent. I think that's all the questions we have time for, but uh, thank you for that talk. Actually, I wrote down a couple of your references. I'm going to chase them down myself. So always, always a good sign when you've uh, you know, intrigued the moderator enough that he's taking notes. Uh, thank you. That's uh, a great uh, a, a great add-on to our already stellar introduction. Okay, uh, speaker number three.
we have joining us. Sorry, let me look at. Uh, now we switch. Uh, we sw switch across the European continent over to Greece, and uh, Doctor. Okay, I'm help me out here. Giamero uh, Giamerellos Rabulis. Uh, apologies for butchering. Uh, <laughs> is going to speak to us on the effect of risk stratification and the timing of host-directed therapy. I think a very nice add-on to what we've already discussed about. Um, individualizing therapy and, and trying to get it right. So uh, Dr. Gemeralos Borbolis, <laughs> sorry, uh, please uh, enlighten us. Well, thank you very much. I would like to thank the organizers for the invitation. I would like to share my enthusiasm to be in this session with uh, so many good uh, friends and great collaborators. And uh, uh, as I will uh, move on the presentation, this is my conflict of interest disclosure. And I would like to tell you what is the consideration and what's the point of view of a regulatory, as it is the uh, Food and Drug Administration of the FDA, according to their guidelines, of what precision medicine means and how this needs to be documented in terms of a randomized clinical trial. So the idea is that therapeutics needs to be guided by biomarkers. It's a bit vice versa of what is taking place in the traditional medicine approach. But the biomarker is not a biomarker which is telling you that the patient has a high risk of unfavorable outcome. For instance, what is the reason of measuring CRP in a patient who's admitted in the ICU just to tell that the patient has unfavorable outcome? Everybody knows that already just because the patient is admitted in the ICU. So the biomarker needs to be informative on a certain pathway which is responsible for the phenotype of the patient. And this pathway needs to be detrimental for outcome. But we need to have available drug which can modulate the pathway and which we need to trust our biomarker and start treatment immediately irrespective of what our traditional medical belief is telling or not. And then the question is, does this work? Do we have somewhere an example that in case of severe infections, this may work? And the answer is yes. This is the approval on the 16th of December 2021 by the European Medicines Agency for the first-in-class registration of a drug for severe infections, which is treatment with anakinra, but not for all the patients. So allow me to tell you, what is the strategy behind that? The idea is that the patient who's in need of oxygen, who has a positive chest X-ray, and who's infected by the novel coronavirus, has increase of a biomarker. A biomarker with the acronym SUPAR at concentration six or more, but it's not just a biomarker telling that the patient will go in a poor, towards a poor outcome. It's a biomarker which is informing that the patient is under the activation and the attack of the L1 pathway, and which tell us that, look, just because the IL-1 is activated, you need to give a compound which can inhibit the IL-1 pathway. And this is something which is already available and which is called anakinra. It's a recombinant human receptor blocking the activity of both L1-alpha and L1-beta. So these are the results of our phase three registrational trial, which were published at Nature Medicine in 2021. And where you can see that 
when you compare the two groups of treatment. Patients in a double-blind, randomized approach receiving standard of care, including dexamethasone, plus placebo, standard of care in, uh, containing dexamethasone, plus anakinra, you achieve in this WHO CPS by day 28, an odds ratio of 0.36 towards poor outcome, which is favoring by relative 64% anakinra treatment compared to placebo. And what you see there is actually a wow phenomenon because there is no immunotherapy, not known in sepsis and not during the COVID years, which can provide this relative huge gap of overall 64% benefit. And why this is taking place? Because not all patients were treated with the same drug, but not only the patients who were indicated by the biomarker, which is not informative about the risk, but the biomarker is informative of the pathway. And when you do a subgroup analysis, which was recently published by our group, you see that all patients, irrespective of comorbidities, the level of support, elderly or not, the gender and the time since onset of symptoms, they get a similar benefit. There is no doubt that by day 90, there is by definition a relative statistically significant 49% survival benefit. And of course, this is leading us to the fact that it was considered in the eyes of the FDA, the other regulatory, so important just because there is this precision strategy that even if the biomarker, SUPOR, is not registered in the market in America, the statisticians of the FDA collaborated with, with the statisticians of our Hellenic Institute for the Study of Sepsis and together we developed a score composed by eight elements, age 75 years or more, need for supplementary oxygen, active or past smoking, total SOFA score three or more, newer history of stroke, ratio of neutrophils to lymphocytes seven or more, hemoglobin 10.5 grams per deciliter or less, blood urea 50 or more, or medical history of renal disease. And patients who are meeting three of these eight criteria, they need to receive treatment. And then allow me to go before the pandemic. And just before the pandemic, we started to understand that not all patients with sepsis are the same, and there is a subgroup of them, which is roughly 5 to 10% of them, who all of a sudden, through the activation of TLR4, they produce IL-1 beta, and this IL-1 beta, in an autocrine approach, triggers IL-1 receptor for more production of IL-1 beta, and this is taking place in tissue macrophages. We realize that just because there is shedding of CD163 in the circulation, and this IL-1 beta, stimulates Kupfer cells, there is hyperproduction of ferritin, low fibrinogen, and this gives birth to a phenotype which resembles HLH. We call that macrophage, macrophage activation-like syndrome. However, it's different than primary HLH, is different than the cytokine storm syndrome after CAR-T treatment because it's L1 driven, it's not L6 driven, Interferon gamma production is not driving hemophagocytosis in the bone marrow. But if you look at this logistic regression analysis for mortality, you will see that in two independent cohorts of patients, 
even among patients who are suffering from ARDS, from acute kidney injury, from shock, this situation, macrophage activation-like syndrome, is an independent entity leading to early death the first 10 days. With this in mind, you listened earlier on by Professor Natea that together we did a small phase two alpha trial. In patients with actually lung infections or primary bacteremia, and we used as tool of classification, as you will see later on, ferritin and HRADR expression of monocytes in order to classify the immune state of sepsis. Also, aiming to investigate if this classification reflects final outcome. And just because macrophage activation syndrome is driven through IL-1, we randomized these patients into treatment with an akinra or with placebo. The classification tools, ferritin, more than 4,420 nanograms per ml for the diagnosis of macrophage activation syndrome. And patients below these concentrations of ferritin, but also having less than 5,000 receptors of HRADR on monocytes, they are classified as sepsis-induced immunoporalysis. The dose of anakinra, as you see, for patients with MALS was 200 milligrams every eight hours for seven days. These are the four strata of classification, clear cut classification in terms of survival. 20% of the patients are suffering from MALS, but 28-day mortality is almost 80% in them. In sepsis-induced immunoparalysis, where the majority of patients lie, mortality is close to 60%, and those at the intermediate state, they do better in terms of mortality. But we have one major denominator. Macrophage activation syndrome points towards the most severe cases, patients in need of vasopressors, but we have some hope. At the end of an akinra treatment, SOFA scores went down and survival was decreased. So our suggestion, if you have macrophage activation syndrome, let's treat with an akinra to block out one beta. If we have sepsis-induced immunoporalysis, let's treat with recombinant interferon gamma to wake up the immune system. With this in mind, as you heard earlier on, we got a fund, Horizon 2020, by the European Union. And there is an ongoing trial in 26 study sites in Germany, in Greece, in Italy, in Romania, in Switzerland, and in the Netherlands, where patients with lung infection or primary bacteremia with sepsis aggravated by or immunoporalysis are randomized in a double-blind, double-dummy approach to treatment with IV anakinra or dummy placebo in case of MALS, or sub-Q interferon gamma and dummy IV in case of immunoparalysis, and both dummy placebo treatments in case of the placebo arm. And of course, these patients, both arms, they are treated with standard of care according to the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. The primary endpoint is the change of mean SOFA score, and the study is powered for 280 patients. And someone may ask, can this be done? Such a complicated approach? Do you indeed have patients in your trial? This is where we are. We have screened so far 434 patients. 
We have enrolled 164 patients. We have another 116 patients to go, and we remain extremely optimistic that the outcome of this first time precision immunotherapy in sepsis will give us important teachings or may even break boundaries for the management of the sepsis patients. Thank you very much for your attention. Excellent. Yeah, I know that's that's a trial I've been watching for a while and uh, with curiosity and and, and, and interest. I, I'm going to kind of stretch you a little bit uh, for a question that, that came from one of our, uh, our uh, participants watching. What about the longer frame immunoparalysis? Right? Is there anything that's being investigated or anything we can do to prepare the patients who are leaving the hospital? Right? The, as we talked about with our prior sp speaker about can the longer frame immunoparalysis, is there anything that can be done or anything that's being investigated in terms of trying to um, reduce that longer-term immunoparalysis that leads to that longer-term dysfunction and, and risk of complications? Uh, what we are really very optimistic regarding this immunosub trial is that we are not just having, of course, there is the clinical primary outcome, which is the most important thing of all, but among the secondary outcomes, we will capture the epigenetic makeup of the patients, because the real mm -hmm. question is, will immunoparalysis remain? I believe that only the epigenome can give us an answer, and once we know that, then we need to design the second step. It's pretty risky to make a hypothesis right now of that, what can be the situation. We just have to wait to see the epigenome signature of these patients. Great. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Uh, and, and so important in terms of knowing who's at risk and who needs to be careful. All right. And who really who needs to take active steps to protect themselves from future infection? Because right now we, we don't know. Um, thank you, and uh, good luck with the Munosep. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting the results myself, so congratulations on the work to date. Thank you. Uh, we are, you know, again, my, my failure as a moderator, I apologize, everyone, we are running a little behind time. Uh, just to let the audience know, the next session will begin at its standard time, so if you need to switch over from one to the other, uh, you know, please feel free to do so, though, of course, I'm selfish, I'd love you to stay with us. Uh, we're now going to transition to our, our final two speakers, um, and we're going to address, I think, one of the biggest changes in our approach towards um, sepsis trials, the concept of these uh, platform trials. This, of course, came uh, very much to the, the fore in uh, COVID-19, where entities like REMAP-CAP and the like uh, really launched very rapidly, very, very important platform trials. So to begin to talk about the pros of platform trials, we have Dr. Christaki joining us again from Greece, a good Greek uh, contingent today, um, going to talk to us again about the pros of platform trials. So Dr. Christaki, please um, tell us the pros before we hear someone tell us how bad it all is. Hello and good morning for, for to everyone who's watching across the globe. Thank you very much for your kind introduction and uh, thank you for the invitation. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to explain why uh, platform trials are appropriate uh, to study immunomodulatory interventions in uh, sepsis. And after my disclosures, I would like to start with what was the reality until a few years ago and adding uh, on what um, Dr. Nete has mentioned before, 
Uh, up to now, all the randomized control trials of immunomodulatory strategies in patients with sepsis and septic shock had only showed um, modest effect or mild effect or most um, in, in the vast majority, no effect. And why was that? You already heard uh, before. That's because there is a high variability uh, in the dysregulation of host immune response. We used to believe uh, that patients with sepsis or septic shock are a very homogeneous population. Well, it turns out it's, it's, they're not, and that has been proven by um, eloquently by many investigators so far. So there's a very big variability on the immune profile of those patients where it can be uh, predominantly hyperinflammatory or immunosuppressive or macrophage activation like uh, resembling or uh, hypercoagulable or other um, uh, phenotypes. And we also know that to improve sepsis outcomes, we have to engage uh, a more personalized approach towards the management of sepsis. We have to take into account other variables that play in, like the genetic susceptibility, the type of infection, and uh, definitely the dynamic nature of the host immune uh, profile. So these days, uh, clinical trials are now being made as such uh, using uh, pathobiology-driven uh, phenotypic or endotypic classification based on specific biomarkers. So we stratify, try to stratify patients based on their uh, host immune response, based on their transcriptomic profile, based on other biomarkers, and uh, then uh, randomize them to take a targeted intervention uh, that might prove beneficial for this uh, specific um, uh, group, for this specific pathway. And uh, so platform trials, again, uh, can enable uh, this type of explorations. Uh, although there are many inconsistencies in the definitions, we can say that platform trials are randomized adaptive trials uh, that may not have an end date. They might continue perpetually, and they allow the assessment of multiple interventions at the same time, uh, and those evolve over time. So we can add uh, or discontinue treatment arms according, of course, to pre-established rules. There is a shared underlying infrastructure that might be challenging to establish, uh, but then uh, uh, arms can be compared uh, to a common control group. And again, this control group can also evolve, especially if the trial uh, durates for a long time and um, the practice changes or the standard of care changes, there's an, there can be an adaptation of the control group. So there is a, there is a master protocol, uh, but amendments can be made to the trial as data accumulates and become uh, available. So in sepsis, uh, like the example of um, immunosep or other um, platform trials in, in sepsis, we can stratify patients based on biomarkers. Uh, and we can have also biomarker negative uh, con uh, control group or a, a different group. And then uh, we can um, target our intervention based on the pathway that's affected in the specific group uh, using that biomarker. Now, if an ex experimental treatment proves futile, uh, this can be stopped and another experimental treatment uh, can be initiated or if one proves to be effective, then it can move on to be uh, the standard of care. And this can go uh, on and on as new um, as new uh, data became available and we have more uh, information on the specific uh, pathways. And I think uh, we've also the benefits of uh, the benefits of platform trials during the pandemic uh, recent years 
especially with the two major trials, the remap cap, which was designed before the pandemic, but with the pandemic in mind, and that compared multiple strategies uh, for uh, patients with COVID-19. And both trials, uh, remap cap and the recovery trial, have tested multiple uh, interventions, some of which have been repurposed and some of which have been abandoned. Uh, what was really, really um, uh, phenomenal was that within three months of the start of the recovery trial, we did have results on the efficacy of dexamethasone and clinicians around the world. We had good evidence that we could um, give our patients uh, treatment uh, that could prove uh, beneficial for uh, patients with COVID-19 uh, who were hospitalized. So the advantages of platform trials are definitely that uh, the, the scope, that they study the disease uh, like sepsis, the syndrome, and not just the intervention. They allow for multiple comparisons which can be done either simultaneously or successively. They minimize the heterogeneity of comparative groups in, um, in, uh, um, in randomized clinical trials by having a shared control group. Um, they allow the accumulation of high quality data in a standardized manner and thus allow for many uh, secondary exploratory um, analyses. Also, they're highly uh, adaptable with the addition and um, uh, dropping of, um, of different arms and with the evolution of uh, the standard of care control group if that, um, if that uh, becomes uh, common practice. Uh, and thus, they have great power uh, to identify new effective therapies and also they can be more generalizable as they're usually less limited in the inclusion criteria of these patients because uh, they can be assigned to different uh, groups within the trial. There's also economy of means with the existing infrastructure, which might be very challenging initially, but then uh, the cost is lower than having to do many individual clinical trials. And there's shorter time to full recruitment and thus a more efficient uh, sample size. They are paramount, as we saw in pandemics uh, or in the case of emerging pathogens, and also with diseases with short life expectancy uh, and great need for new drugs where patients cannot wait for the lengthy um, traditional randomized control trials. Uh, they allow a shorter time to treatment uh, evaluation and a seamless transition from phase to phase. Sometimes they can combine phase two and phase three. And their perpetual trial conduct is, um, is very uh, elegant and attractive uh, since it can continue on and on and we don't have to stop and start uh, the trial again and again. And it's believed uh, by some that they also might be more ethical as they allow a larger proportion of participants to be assigned to experimental arms. And also by adapting randomization, uh, maybe new participants can be um, are more likely to receive better performing therapies as we move along. Of course, there are challenges, and I'm sure you're going to hear more uh, from the next speaker, uh, like chronological bias, if the normal periods uh, for each arm are not uh, overlapping, uh, or if the trial um, lasts for a long time and there's evolving patient management, then you need uh, sophisticated statistical um, methods in order to uh, allow for a comparison, minima minimize the statistical errors, uh, and optimize trial efficiency. Uh, also, the trials need uh, extensive simulations in order to establish the decision rules on adding and dropping interventions. There are the usual reservations of overestimation or underestimation of the size um, of the effect size with uh, interim uh, analysis, which again can be counteracted with a very detailed statistical plan and uh, issues concerning the implementation of uh, blinding.
Of course, uh, planning can be very uh, challenging and extensive. Um, uh, governance is key. Uh, the uh, coordination of stakeholders um, is, um, uh, is is needed, and uh, there are uh, documents by the uh, FDA and EMA um, coming out on the guidance of such uh, trials. Uh, and also early scientific opinion has to be sought in order for future acceptance by regulatory authorities. Thus, in summary, platform trials, why platform trials are um, appropriate uh, in sepsis, because sepsis is a condition whose management will require multiple interventions. Uh, platform trials enable the stratification of patients as previously seen based on uh, biology-driven biomarkers, uh, new profiling and two types of phenotypes and the simultaneous or successive comparisons of targeted interventions for those groups. Uh, their design is um, more pragmatic and probably more feasible within the heterogeneous critically ill sepsis population. And they also allow the exploration of optimal drug dosing and also other treatment biomarker uh, interactions. And last, of course, if they're more time efficient in a disease that has still high mortality and many unanswered questions. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Um, I, yeah, speaking as a clinical trialist myself, I think platform trials are, are definitely necessary to go forward with as um, complicated and particularly in a narrow time frame uh, intervention like sepsis. Um, a question from the audience that I think is uh, appropriate, particularly as we talked about some of the challenges with um, platform trials is uh, the involvement of patient representatives in getting involved in study design and uh, uh, execution. What do you think is, or how do you think that we can improve uh, the incorporation of uh, patients, former patients, patient advocates, what have you, um, in these platform trials, in their design and their execution? Because that is, that is a voice that's not always um, heard when it comes to clinical trial design. Absolutely. The view of the, of the patients and what's important to them um, is um, something that's um, more recognized in the last years. And uh, I believe that in practically most uh, trials these days, uh, in, the, in their design, uh, it's uh, expected uh, that this, um, this view is taken care of and they, um, um, they, they participate uh, in uh, their, their part of the of the stakeholders that uh, that govern the, the trial design. Excellent. Yeah, I, I would hope that uh, along with better, more sophisticated, uh, more promising design, that we also pay more attention to kind of the the real needs and the real wants of the patients that were participating in those trials. Because right, you know, patient-centered outcomes, I think, are becoming kind of a, it's an important phrase, but kind of an important concept, right? We should not just focus on things that are easy for us to measure as scientists, but to try and focus on outcomes that mean something to the patients who are, you know, putting themselves at risk by participating in these trials. Exactly, exactly. Okay, uh, now moving to the flip side of the coin, uh, some of the challenges or some of the drawbacks to these, uh, the allure of platform trials. Um, we have joining us uh, Dr. Niels Riedemann. Uh, from InfloRx. So please tell us, uh, tell us why we shouldn't, uh, maybe why we shouldn't be too seduced by uh, the new, the lore of platform trials. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Nathan, for the nice introduction uh, and also to all the other speakers. Great session so far. I've uh, taken here the con side of things, so I have to be the critical voice in the room, even though I do believe there are merits of uh, platform trials to be very transparent here up front. So just uh, um, as a matter of housekeeping, uh, my declaration of conflict of interest, I, I have founded and worked for a company that... Uh, that I partially still own and that I have uh, interest in and that is ever active in the space again, uh, because we got uh, a recent uh, emergency use authorization for a drug in the United States um, in, in COVID-19 patients that are certain certain critically ill COVID-19 patients. But I have been uh, on the other side before. I was the vice director of intensive care medicine um, and led a large intensive care University Hospital Unit of, uh, of my former boss, Conrad Reinhardt, whom many of you may know. So cons of platform trials, I think there's important aspects that uh, I want to say up front. If we talk about cons of platform trials, there's so many different types of platform trials in the meantime that we probably should focus a bit what Irene was Irene was doing as well, focusing a bit more on, on, on these types of trials in the critical care universe as they're usually used, because as you may know, they have been quite substantially used already in different forms in other areas like oncology. Um, so also when you think about what the cons and pros are of platform trials, I think it's important to understand what, what you wanna achieve with the trial, right? So do you wanna just find hypothesis or likely effective treatments, or do you wanna have um, you know, a proof of efficacy, which is a higher bar as we all know. And then again, if you're establishing efficacy of uh, existing drugs, um, are you doing this with uh, known drugs of known safety profiles? So what we sometimes call repurposing, um, or are you really developing new drugs and how does that differ? So I think that's very important because these may have different challenges uh, also from a regulatory point of view, and it's important to keep in mind. Um, so when we talk about platform trials, I use this, um, figure here that I found in a, in a very nice publication here in clinical microbiology. Um, and you see that you have a single disease in this case, for example, sepsis, and then you have um, um, one control arm, common control arm, that's typically what's done. And then different arms, uh, treatment arms, in this case, only two. And then um, as you move forward, you may drop an arm and adapt the trial and have an adaptive design and may even add a new arm, like in this case, arm C. Now, the, the, the common thing that I want to come back to in my talk is that you have one control arm and that can create major problems um, for certain reasons, especially if you enroll the patients timely, not at the exact same time point when you want to compare to your active treatment. And that is, of course, important in dynamic diseases, as we've seen it in, in um, COVID. And so using an adaptive design is certainly um, something that has big merits. But it is very important when you think about randomization that you always committently and concurrently randomize patients in your control arm so you have a fair comparison. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you may even add a new control arm later to identify or to better research one arm that you find most useful to research further. So um, this control arm is something I come back to in a minute. Um, and I just wanna, you know, take also this example as this is kind of a process of reiteration, as the trial goes on, you randomize patients uh, within your protocol, you record the outcomes, you update the trial data, and you're looking at your statistical models and you're applying them. And then you have termination rules or continuation rules, sometimes they call this graduate the intervention. 
and then you kind of update your randomization in your weights. And this is something that is also called response adaptive randomization. That means you start putting more patients in the arm where you see certain effects. Now, that has merits as well. And it, I, for the interest of time, I can't go in all, uh, into all details here, but it has drawbacks. Because remember what I said, if you don't concurrently randomize one-to-one -to, -one to a control arm, you may introduce bias. And I'm going to give you an example to explain that. And then you also see you can add new interventions. And in principle, adding a new intervention has the same problems. Now, let's look at this uh, going forward here uh, at, at something that Irene already called out, the, the problem of multiplicity. Um, um, and statisticians like to use these, these terms that we sometimes get shell-shocked by. But in fact, this only means like when you test something, you always have a certain chance that you reject your null hypothesis. That means you declare a treatment active, which is actually not active. It should have not rejected the null hypothesis Null hypothesis being that there's no difference between your drug and the, and the placebo arm. Now, when can that arise, the problem? If, every time you test multiple tests, either at the primary end point or you have different subgroups that you want to test, like in a platform trial, or if you have several endpoints you want to test in, a, in, a, in an order, or if you have one endpoint but different time points. So every time you do multiple testing, the aspect of multiplicity applies. Now, what does it mean again? You know, every time, and we know that, for example, if, if we have a single-sided fit 5% alpha, that means we are accepting, accepting the chance that with 5% likelihood, we're rejecting non-hypothesis incorrectly, meaning we're declaring a drug active that is actually not active. Now, as we add more testings in the same row, we increase the chance, and in this case, in this example, up to 9.75%, by doing two tests or three tests, et cetera. And, and if you don't control for that, you are ending up with a decent likelihood that you declare one of your drug arms in a platform trial effective, even though it's not, just by statistical chance. Now, there are um, sophisticated methods how to control for that, and that's why you need, and, uh, and the previous speakers have alluded to that, very good statisticians that are able to control this because regulators, especially if you want to get a drug approved with such a trial, We'll come back and ask you, how do you control for this? How did you control? Was there adequate control measurements in place? Or do we have to assume that there's a very big likelihood that you just saw this by chance? Okay, that's something that's a bit more complicated, so I put it in the front. But then looking at operational challenges. So a platform trial usually tries to, in, in our setting here, tries to look at different experimental agents and th th sometimes it's really difficult to keep patients blinded because these different experimental agents may have different routes of administration. Now, unblinding a trial or not keeping a, a, a trial fully blinded has much bigger implications than most physicians usually know because these systematic errors that come into trials when you're really not blinded uh, including trial personnel, including how you behave with the patient, um, can can really introduce a strong bias that can skew all results. So having a trial not blinded is a big risk, and we need to take care, for example, with more than one control arm, if we have different agents, that we are controlling this risk. Um, then, of course, um, these trials are very design um, intense and operationally complex. Uh, and that means you, we, we have to have a lot of resources on setting them up. Um, the setup times are usually longer, and that includes all sorts of uh, 
necessary elements to set up a trial. And then again, I mentioned only usually one control arm. And when you don't have concurrent randomization, this can really introduce a big bias. And I want to give you one example. And I found a great publication here from Friedlin and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this is a hypothetical example, but it really illustrates very nicely what can happen. So consider this being a hypothetical example where the left side, the A picture here, is a, is a control arm. So in the control arm, um, the mortality in April was 12.9%, and the mortality in May shifted in this disease down to 5.9%. Now, as you move on with your control arm, if you take both months together, your, your um, mean um, mortality was 9.3%, right? So you wouldn't know this if you don't look at the two time points. You just look at your control arm. It has 9.3% mortality. Now, let's say you added a new treatment in your platform trial, and you added that treatment in May. And now you are enrolling, and you're seeing um, a 5.9% mortality in May. Now you're comparing that not to the May of control arm, but to the control arm, so to the 9.3%. And that gives you a spurious treatment effect of 37% relative reduction in mortality. And as we can all appreciate, of course, that is not true. That is just, you know, based on the fact that you don't have a completely concurrent randomization. You randomize control patients also earlier where the mortality was much higher, right? And it's important to note, this problem can work both ways. So you can make new non-effective treatments seem effective, but you can always make new effective treatments seem ineffective if your mortality moves the other way in the control. So I think this is a very wonderful, simple example, but it is very powerful because this is probably the biggest problem if you use one control arm and you're assuming that it's the right control for different interventions at different time points. Um, so um, last but not least, um, you know, these trials, platform trials, are usually more pragmatic in their setup. And, and that's, that's, that's one of the purposes in terms of you want to enroll patients fast, like in the pandemic, and you want to engage a lot of different centers in, in different countries. Um, and so... Um, Oftentimes that means, it doesn't have to, but it means that you have less tightly controlled data management, audits, safety assessments than, for example, a company would have to do in a registrational trial. Now, um, and that is especially tedious in acute care trials. I can tell from experience. It's, it's, it's really, really tedious. Just managing the amount of SAEs and adverse events, it's, it's dramatic. So, this also implies less control over procedural aspects sometimes, and, and that means adherence to inclusion, exclusion criteria, and timing of important procedures or interventions. Now, people, I think, often overlook what that means. Why is this important? Well, data quality, we all agree, that is important. If you want to go to a regulator and get something approved, they're going to poke holes in what you're showing them, and rightfully so, they need to make sure that everything is perfect. However, the one aspect I would like to allude to here is when you are loosening up on your controls and you have less adherence, what that does, um, especially when you have non-dichotomous endpoints, but also with dichotomous endpoints, it means you're increasing the variability. And, and that is something that is oftentimes underappreciated, what that does to your trial setup, because as you, for example, increase the standard deviation, um, you have large 
um, potential statistical considerations. And I want to give you one example, and that's the last time I torture you here <laughs> with uh, statistics. So in this example, let's say we're looking together at days on ventilator in, in mean, right? That's my endpoint. I want to show that a new intervention reduces the days on ventilator, right? That's my endpoint. Now, let's say you have good knowledge in, let's say, your kind of, I'm in, I'm in Germany. So in Germany, in our multi-center setting, I have good knowledge that the six, 16 days are the standard uh, um, that I should assume for being the mean in my control group. And I have a standard deviation of seven days. I tested that in my trials before. So this is the basis of your estimate. And I think the new treatment can reduce this mean by two full days, which as an intensivist, we may know, appreciate that's a lot, right? Coming from 16 to 14. Now, all of a sudden, I go to different countries, and that can also happen in larger trials generally, but in uh, platform trials, that's oftentimes the case. Or you're going to enroll more centers to be more pragmatic, to be faster. And then all of a sudden, you have different standards. You have different ventilator machines, different standard operating procedures, different common practice, how patients are extubated, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just say your standard deviation actually increases, which you haven't thought of, from the seven days to 10. And I will show you what that means. So here's the first example. We want to have days on ventilator from 16 reduced to 14 with our treatment, and we're trying to set up a trial. And the standard deviation that we think is the right one is 7. With an applied alpha of 5% and 90% power, it means we have a sample size calculated of 514 patients. Now, using the exact same example and introducing variability by getting your standard deviation to 10 means in order to keep the alpha and power, you're going to pretty much more than double that sample size that you need. So if you don't know in your trial how the variability shifts, you may think that going from 500 to 800 patients is the advantage, but you may be wrong because you would have needed to double the size. In other words, you can do the same example here by just doing a post hoc power calculation. If you don't think of it and you stick to your 500 patients in your sample size, you're losing power from 90 down to 62 in the same example. So I, I hope this illustrates that controlling a trial variable, especially in an acute care setting, is very important and can have big impacts on whether you see the effect or not. Okay, so this was a lot of, uh, and this is an example that I created here just to illustrate the problem, but I want to conclude and come to an end. Um, so platform trials are complex in the setup phase, and they are more pragmatic in the execution phase, and this, this can result in some problems. Less tightly controlled data quality, um, and that may have impacts on regulatory approvability, um, but it also may come to higher variability, which is the last example I showed you. And then also bias can be introduced by unblinding. And, and I want to flag this as very important, even though I haven't given concrete examples on what that can do. Statistical challenges that are known um, are, for example, managing the concurrent randomization. I hope I could convince you that this is probably the biggest problem in these trials, if I don't think of it or adjust for it. And then multiplicity. This actually can be taken care of quite well with good statisticians and a good setup. And then the last but not least, managing the effect variability in the statistical trial planning, which is, as I had hoped to, to show you, can be very important looking at different endpoints. 
So with that, I hope I could give you some notes of caution, but I want to still say that platform trials can be very helpful. They actually have shown great benefit. And with that, I want to come to an end and, and also thank uh, uh, Dr. Simon Rickinger, who's expert statistician and has helped me and also our company and many others in the past with a lot of uh, good, good insights. And he also checked that I didn't calculate wrong examples here. <laughs> so with that, thank you so much. And I give back to, to you, Nathan. Oh, thank you, Niels. That was, that was excellent. I, I think you, right, you rightly point out that just because the um, adaptive or platform design is, is novel and has a lot of benefits, it still doesn't um, save us from the, the challenges we've had historically of, seps of sepsis or critical care trials. A lot of the same challenges still exist, right? I mean, just, just because it's in a platform doesn't necessarily mean that we get away from the failure to identify the right patients. Uh, right, the failure to um, match, you know, basically match treatment to to patient phenotype. Right, it's not it's not a cure for all of the failures of sepsis trials of the past. Right, it's just a different way to kind of collect a lot of patients in a hurry. That that's exactly right. So you may fall in the same pitfalls. And I remember ten years ago, Nathan, or twelve years ago, there was an NIH working session where I was invited. And we discussed the future of sepsis trials because the last big trial, I think it was a Takeda trial, had just failed mm. globally. Yeah. And we discussed how can we move forward. And th there were there were two. There were, I would I would say there were two parties. The one that heavily advocated for more pragmatic mega trials, and the others that said no, 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 no. We have to go to smaller trials that we identify precision. the patients that need. And I think today, I think looking back, it's quite clear precision has been the way to go or is going to be the way to go, in my personal opinion. Same. I, I think the last uh, example I showed you on variability, this, this you can really fall in a big pitfall by saying just increasing the sample size doesn't mean you hit it because if you don't know how you create, how you control variability, you may be still off. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the one of our participants mentioned the the risk of uh, introducing subgroups, right? In terms of if if you're going to try and do subgroup analyses, even in platform trials, you have to be really careful about how you specify them. Otherwise, you do wind up with kind of the the epi phenomenon of post you know post hoc subgroups coming out of platform trials where you're you're slicing the data even finer, and then you get the spurious correlations that you point out. That is a very important point, Nathan. I think we need to absolutely look at subgroups more as hypothesis generating. And we should not fall in into the hole to say, oh, look at how great that subgroup looked, right? <laughs> Just because it's a platform <laughs> trial. We wouldn't we wouldn't do that to a company trial that does a large randomized one-to-one right. -one trial. We should absolutely. also not do it here. So I think it's very valuable that in a very short time we can generate hypothesis, but we should still always have built in the idea, how do I then prove it adequately? Absolutely. Uh, Niels, thank you. That was a great uh, word of caution, but also kind of a, some advice going forward in terms of you know, appropriate trial design for sepsis, because you're right, we, uh, there, are, there are high stakes here. We need to do things right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So thank, thank you, thank you again to the fabulous five speakers that we've had. Uh, we have a few minutes. We're over time, but we haven't overlapped to the next session yet. So I'm going to, you know, exercise moderator's prerogative and, and ask a few questions from the from our audience. 
Uh, there, this came up a couple of questions actually about uh, not just kind of longer term immunoparalysis, but is there an element or is there an, um, a place for looking at issues like nutrition in terms of its effect on immunoparalysis or immune dysfunction, um, either within that hospitalization or kind of post-hospitalization, peri-hospitalization? Is there is there a function of kind of micronutrient supplementation or uh, nutritional support that can further either contribute or mitigate the uh, you know short term or longer term immunoparalysis? So I'll throw that out to uh, any this, of our experts uh, that want question? to comment. May I get this question? Go for it. So you know very well that uh, there are several parenteral. I would rather I dare to call them solutions, but. Uh, and uh, they are enriched in polyunsaturated fatty acids. The data that we have so far uh, having an impact on the immune system is glutamine, which has this known growth impact on gut, on gut uh, epithelium, and uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. And actually the balance between omega-3 and omega-6 is considered to have an impact on the ability of the immune system for the production of TNF. However, uh, particularly uh, the preparations which are enriched in omega-3, they are preferred particularly for patients with ARDS. Actually, the rationale behind that, at least in terms of basic research, is that they attenuate hyperinflammatory responses. Nobody can argue whether these are maintained or not after ICU discharge. There are no data on that. Uh -huh. And of course, this is not well accepted. You know very well that there are trials with prones, trials with cons, a lot of meta-analysis uh -huh. on that, but it's actually the only in, uh, immunonutrition for which there is also uh, some rationale and also pack gene analysis pointing towards that. I think I think that's, the summary is out there is, you know, while there certainly is uh, theoretical underpinnings for the notion that, uh, you know, micronutrients or That's nutritional status, yeah. status has, may have an influence in both short and longer term immunoparalysis. The, the short answer is we really just don't know. <laughs> um, and another, another question I, I think that comes up, um, it came up in a different couple different ways in questions is, um, how do we know where our patients are in that, you know, hyperimmune, hypoimmune, uh, scale when they uh, when they arrive to the ICU, but then also how do we know what our treatments are doing? How do we know where we're where we're sliding our patients in terms of uh, you know on that scale? So, uh, Doctor, uh, anyone wants to kind of jump in on that one, please? Uh, maybe Doctor Mazinski, this is something because you you rightly pointed out a lot of those markers. So, how do you how do you identify where the patients are when they arrive? And in the parallel, how do you assess where your patients are moving as they're being treated in the ICU? Well, I think this um, goes back to that first question about how do we bring these measures to the bedside that oh. would facilitate rapid turnaround identification of where the patient is when they arrive in longitudinal measures so that you can look at the response to treatment over time as well, and not just immunomodulatory treatment, but uh -huh. you know, how do our antimicrobial therapies um, impact 
the immune response to sepsis. Um, there's some uh, excellent uh, preclinical data suggesting that perhaps antibiotic dose uh, can be thought of as an immunomodulator uh-huh. uh, in a way by, uh-huh. of course, taking care of the infection itself that's perpetuating this dysregulated immunologic response. And so I think that the future really uh, will demand uh, these rapid turnaround uh, biomarkers or assessments of where patients are longitudinally uh, in uh-huh. that spectrum of inflammation and immune suppression and not just in a single point in time. Excellent. So that is, yes, we know it's important. We hear you. We just don't have it yet. Not yet. Uh, alas, Hopefully right? The, the, cla- <laughs> the classic ends for sepsis. We're, we're almost there, we swear. Uh, well, fantastic. Uh, we are now approaching uh, kind of, you know, well over our allotted times, but so that we don't drag in and away from the other scheduled start time for uh, session nine. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our uh, fantastic speakers. That was a great session. Um, I took a bunch of notes, uh, things to follow up on myself. Um, and I think that exciting times are ahead. I think this is really important where we're, we are maturing in our understanding of sepsis in terms of identifying the heterogeneity, the complexity of our interventions, and trying to really take the kind of the first baby steps into kind of tailoring our therapies to our patient rather than just a one-size-fits-all approach. Platform trials, I think, are going to form a big portion of that, but I think the cautionary tale is um, that unless you're really careful, they fall into the same traps as conventional or historical studies do. So while I think they are going to be important, they're going to form part of our lifeline into the future of sepsis trials. Uh, They still need to be done with the same rigor and um, scrutiny that our other trials have. So with that, uh, thank you again to our our fantastic speakers. What a a great, great session. Um, I truly, truly enjoyed it. Uh, It was worth getting up at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, So thank you all. And um, for the participants, thank you for your questions. Thank you for engagement. Thank you for your feedback. And uh, I sincerely hope you enjoy the rest of the World Sepsis Congress. So thank you so much and uh, be well. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to the fourth WSC. Session 7 is already available and 9 and 10 will follow next Tuesday, May 30th. See you then.